Because the um, knees would be on the floor and the soles of your feet would look up to the ceiling. <laughs> Can you try? Not even you could. Some do, yeah? Not too long, but a little while. It's just all good training. So then you notice the... Notice that on the other end, on its end, it uh, uh, connects and holds your head. Can you notice that? So, and then you realize how you are holding your arms, in which way you allow your hands to rest after they have joined. or not joints, then they are resting mainly on your knees. It's also a lovely feeling. And a restful one. If you have them joined and you let them rest in your lap, but in this cross-legged situation, there is no lap. There is vacuum space and your hands fall down. I see some, then we sit like that is if you have a little pillow, then here, then you let them rest here. Otherwise you would, um, at least in the Zen training, they put a great emphasis and attention to the way you sit. They say sitting is uh, meditation. They call it Zazen. Uh, for sit, uh, so the way you sit and express this body in this position, the way you will be uh, having in that way you will have, that will determine the quality of your sitting and of your attention and, and uh, the quality of your witnessing mind. Uh, so um, notice then as you continue paying attention more continuously now to breathing, finding the different places, the two places at times where you acknowledge more directly the breath then you acknowledge between times the way you sit. So right now, notice the uprightness of the spinal column. Notice it's the whole torso rising out of this base that is formed by two thighs, two knees, two lower legs and two feet. Then we may notice that uh, the last vertebrae of the spinal column holds the head. You may just convince yourself, 
by not making a little turn of your head to the left shoulder and then come back feeling these sensations and make another turn not right all the way down to the shoulder just a little Mm -hmm. and then return and then you notice your head connecting to the atlas vertebrae and you still may not feel it so you Tilt the head half an inch backwards, slowly, Mm -hmm. just a half an inch, and maybe another quarter of an inch backwards. And let, as you do, hold this position, let your shoulders drop a little bit more, and gently return to that point where you feel comfortable holding let your, your head with that um, last vertebrae. Then the back of your head can be in alignment with your sacrum. If you, that means you will know now whether you hold your head too much forward and uh, have not that an alignment. That means it is that upper point, the back of the head, the distance from here down to the sacrum, it's kind of nice one line, vertical line. Mm-hmm. You may really, that line may be noticed just in, from the end along the spinal column. Then we acknowledge the way we are holding our hands. I already mentioned it. And now how it feels. Sitting, body, cross-legged. With the base of your torso, with the upper legs, you are quite in contact with the earth here. and inviting our mind now to notice this living process in this posture. It is being breathed. And our awareness, our witnessing this process will more and more allow the breath to come into its own natural rhythm of arriving in the body and leaving the body. It's a very wonderful rhythm, coming and going. More and more do we come to experience ourselves as a vessel that through which the energy of breath comes deliver themselves, dissolve and come as a different substance of they are leaving after the delivery of the life force. It's not the same that as going away the same breath. This has delivered 
very special energy, cosmic energy, the outer universe has you connected with ours and then we watch how it goes there's a great movement taking place that what has been inflated and risen from the inhalation is now subsiding, deflating wonderful movement and you are realizing that you are observing in non-interference as possible as much as possible when you find you forget it and you find yourself in la la land making holiday in the bahamas then you are off center <laughs> you have lost your practice gently Return. The minute you realize you already are returned, there is no journey anymore. It's an awakening directly. So please enjoy again this process in you happening in the light of your awareness, not so grasping when you feel you want to come and feel the breath, then it's a time to step back and say, sitting, body, breathing. That resets yourself and brings you back more into the atmosphere of being present rather than wanting something that is not there. Just a message that we have come to the end, almost a few minutes left for the walking and arriving there and maybe for one or two um, hints for being mindful in in eating. Eating is a process also that happens in the body, also a nurturing process. And it... um, Uh, can also and should also come into the range of our awareness. Nothing is outside this practice of being mindful. Every little aspect, mindfulness, uh, can comprehend it. It's a beautiful practice. So it can begin maybe with a few thoughts of gratefulness that we have received this marvelous meal. We could have a thought of those who have not this great fortune to be fed like this. In fact, there are many 
even in our own rich country that are going hungry, just a little atmosphere creating yourself that can uh, relate in, uh, and has relation and can receive to this eating process, can kind of um, receive eating in some, as, in some understanding, in some ways relating then you may allow yourself to realize where the food comes from. For many labors, comes from the fields, from the blessings and, uh, of the sun rays. The darkness of the moon has contributed to it. Or the darkness of the night, the rains. It's just realizing a little bit more so that we can get out and be freed from this uh, uh, compulsiveness to eat and to gratify this hunger. That is taking place too, but we are uh, receiving it in mindfulness. We kind of allow this eating, receiving the food, chewing it and swallowing giving it over to the process of digestion, it can become a sacred act. It only becomes sacred because you are present and you can maybe feel that. It radiates a beautiful feeling. Uh, You are awake, you are present to the present moment, unfolding of my life. So in this way, try to, to, to... to receive your food. You have done that, I know, many times. But we always need reminders for we all suffer from the same sickness, forgetfulness. Hmm? The thinking process, conditioned one, is very strong, developed, and always cuts through and into our experiences and separates us actually this way this way from the present moment unfolding. Hmm? So then tomorrow I will give more, uh, uh, we can go deeper into it and receive a little bit more uh, detailed instructions. Hmm? And uh, not to forget and honor all the practice and skillfulness you have already developed and uh, you can now use. It begins with a step into the dining room, being mindful of your eating. As your hand reaches out for the tray or for the plate and the silverware, and uh, you proceed, see yourself proceeding to this beautiful display and offering of Mother Earth and all the great energies which contributed. Hmm? the rain, the sun, the moon, and so on. And you may also just lightly stay connected to the fact that you are breathing. And a little more stronger that there is a body that is being fed 
and then you notice the mind is not separating itself. You notice that you are noticing this, you are present, this moment here, fully there. Hmm? You can improve on this. As I read you yesterday, because it is a process of moving toward awakening and enlightenment, training our minds. It has no beginning and it has no end. Everything mm, was or is already there. That what we look for is already there. It was there. It has no had not a real beginning for us. It has also therefore no end. So then, in this way, rejoice in this wonderful event, eating and receiving food for the um, benefit of our health and for our practice. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. On time. Under our kind of stressful, busy lives. hmm? So um, in movement, we have an easier way to kind of concentrate because we move and the activity, the feelings of the body is activated. hmm? It's kind of stimulated and the sensations are stronger through the movement and um, we are relieved from um, this uh, anxiety to hold focus to the sensations that are so subtle and sometimes not available. Hmm? And they evade us a lot. So um, it's kind of easier hmm, to notice your body when you are moving, isn't it? Just alone, already standing, feels a little bit better. Uh, when I walk off with that whole thing here, I said, now we can check just like what, just what I said this moment. Let's check whether that is true when I move. here, um, well, why don't you think what we do here? Give a view. What would you say? What do we do here, basically, on the very human level? Human. What do we try to do with all the different practices, basically? Hmm? Well, that, um, yeah, it says it, but it really, uh, why do we want to awaken? Okay. To find true happiness. 
Yeah, to happiness, somebody else. More? Why do we want to awaken? Jane? To relieve, relieve suffering. Yeah, that is closer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the suffering has to do with a lot of problems. Hmm? Makes our lives uh, um, quite uh, upset and unhappy and discontent. There's a basic dis, uh, dissatisfaction in us because of the dukkha we experience. Hmm? We want to um, reduce it. We want to, to, to not to go away. That is a problem. We do go away from it. That is our usual um, kind of handling dukkha. We try to find a a relief by uh, going to something what is pleasant, what lets us forget the worry and the anguish and so on, hmm? or the problems. And that is the very worst thing we can do. In order to really get rid of, uh, of dukkha, of the problems, there is uh, an advice coming from the Buddha, and that is his, what he is teaching. He is asking us very, um, to, to engage, to bring, uh, to, to notice this dukkha, to uh, allow it to coexist, and not to run away. To, press, to push it away and to pretend it isn't there. And to bring it into the range of awareness. And that's where the mystic of, uh, of <laughs> the real mystique of our practice begins, which is countered to the normal view among normal human beings in the handling of dukkha. Hmm? Turning away, forget it, make it pleasant again. Some do it a whole year, a whole lifetime. And it is a, a stressful life because this dukkha is not so easy to eradicate these problems. There is only one radical eradication. And that is allowing it to live, to, to be in the range of our awareness. So it does, that means where, since Dukkha is here where we live, in our hearts it is, in our soul, in our minds, in our <clears throat> body too. We are allowing it now to be observed, to be noticed, without any other interference. There are some problems, maybe, <clears throat> which have to need to uh, to kind of handled very fast, uh, and uh, some action is necessary. But if we are too eager beaver and we are just uh, in that compulsion to, 
to, to eradicate it, we do something wrong in handling that dukkha. We do the wrong decisions, we do um, get into that um, habit of blaming the environment, finding fault somewhere else for this dukkha. Hmm? This is what we are doing. We are dealing with this. And that is the first noble truth. And we have a good practice for that. <clears throat> this is a truth of dukkha. That means it, he formulated it so that we are beginning gradually to understand it is something which is happening in life under all circumstances. It is a truth. And it will can be removed from that status through the Buddha's teaching. He offers us a method And that is the practice of mindfulness. And that is having the task now, everything what we are experiencing, and which is in the realm of dissatisfaction and of dukkha, of problems, has now to be experienced in an greater spaciousness, which means mindfulness or uh, conscious awareness. We have to allow it, to look at it, and to understand more and more. It is a truth, this thing, which I want to get rid of and want to shake. And it is not so shakeable. It is deep ingrained in, in our old habits. So we have now, um, from the Buddha, the remedy. That's what we do. We use his remedy, his recipes, to um, diminish, gradually come to uproot, really, this dukkha. That doesn't mean we don't die anymore and we don't get sick sick anymore. So we could say, then what's the point? Some dukkhas are absolutely not to be eradicated when it comes to this old age and uh, uh, um, death and... Uh, um, sickness. Hmm? But what happens? We are not bothered anymore by it. We don't fight it anymore. We attain a different relationship to it. And that happens in the shift of our consciousness. Through watching it, through accepting it, through observing it, to letting it coexist, that discomfort, that sickness, that, and of course we can do things on one level, and if we do to help it along. 
that not then in the attitude of to get rid of it and it shouldn't be here. That is only feeding the fire, the problem. So that is what we are doing. We are actually changing our consciousness to a different attitude, to accepting, to understand what we don't want to have for true and what don't want to, to live, to, to, to understand or to accept. That this dukkha, this discomfort with all its uh, problems is a truth for everyone in different forms, in different qualities and shapes and, and, and uh, intensities. Is this dukkha occurring? Some are very basic, which belong to just being born. And the rest, we are creating unknowingly in this enormous misunderstanding we are living, which which is called ignorance, or inability how to deal with this dukkha, and to take that also as a truth, so that we, at first glance, when we see the sadness and and the the upsetness and the rage you have... um, just uh, recollecting yourself that uh, um, it is uh, it it is existing because I am alive and because there is a cause to it. And when we have this grace at hand and developed, which is called mindfulness and attention. We become more quiet and more um, gracious. With, therefore, with this, we see it's dukkha. It is because I am alive, and there is that co- there is the cause. And in that more quiet and graciousness, we re- have the ability now to trace the truth of the cause of that dukkha. And it, it has one word. It's called dhatanha. Means thirst. Means um, uh, desire. Means craving. On one level, to move away, crave for pleasantness. Place for crave for. Something what gives me relief. Not knowing that it is only a temporary relief. We do become uh, like someone, you know, who, who, who goes and steps into a big, uh, big uh, barrel of honey or of uh, m- mud not barrel, in kind of a swamp. You cannot save yourself. The more you work in there, you sink deeper and deeper. Hmm? The more you 
make effort to get away from it. You get deeper because you don't understand how to stop it and how to prevent myself for creating more causes for my dukkha. Isn't that nice to see it that way? That was my discourse. (laughs) (laughs) But let's look into a special problem now. I will be generous tonight. So you see, when we see problems, um, our dukkha, now that is what we are now doing. We have the remedy for it by mindfulness. And when we are seeing it is coming up now, we know right away, right away do we know why it is existing you have enough understanding to, t- to answer that question. Why is it existing? Because there was lack of awareness when we created it. <laughs> when we pro- produced the cause for it. See, one great problem we do, um, and which is another dukkha, is eradicated in this attitude, when you realize your dukkha or the problems of your friends have arisen or are there because they have a cause and this cause could only be taken place or happen because of what? Lack of attention, lack of awareness. Isn't that logic? and easy to understand, who can follow, see? So, and here, and uh, this phenomenon, this attitude of us craving to have it more pleasant other than it is, because I want uh, this problem, any problem, any anguish, any, any dukkha is unpleasant. And the craving is toward pleasant. And the the act is moving away from it. And that holds this, this phenomenon going from the unpleasant to the pleasant. That is actually the realm of the second foundation of mindfulness. That is sensations and feelings. Feelings of pleasant and unpleasant. It's quite an powerful thing because the pleasantness and the unpleasantness keep us busy. They make our interaction in the society. They entertain us with it. So that's why we are busy. Striving toward the pleasant and fighting the unpleasant. That is called Vedana, the feeling, second foundation of mindfulness. We are in the first one, noticing, practicing development of awareness, of awakening, by uh, taking the body 
the first field of the four fields of and establishments of mindfulness as our focus. Now we can uh, tonight. I we will get a little touch of that second one. How can we observe that? It occurs. This vedana, this feeling of pleasant and unpleasant, with all experiences, and it commands. Um, it uh, it keeps us busy. It um, lets us strive and 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 move and uh, and and grasp away from the unpleasant. Whatever the problems are on the dukkha, it's dukkha. And that determines that determines our life. That is a very strong power. It has us in its grip. The compulsion to move away from the unpleasant and to get it more pleasant. And that is, we can experience this feeling, this vedana, in every experience. It is it's always there, whether you are seeing the the beautiful part of a, a vase full of flowers, seeing, it's pleasant. If it, if you leave it here. And don't change it in three days. You will not feel pleasant about it when you see them. The water is 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 having uh, um, the water is smelling bad. The flowers are faded. It does. It's not something for you to experience pleasant. It's ugly. Hmm? And if you had to have it for another three days in your room, it would uh, this uh, atmosphere this is, uh, would uh, spread all throughout the room, and it would be more unpleasant. So, it, what I wanted to demonstrate by it is telling you and understand, making us understand that these feelings, this Vedana, arise in every experience. Whether we are making our exercises, you heard Jane talking about it yesterday, oh, when I started, she was already in, 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 in dukkha, in a problem, because she projected now, oh, she always does it long, oh, I will not be able to do it. And she remained quite a lot, a little time more, and she was in that time manufacturing more dukkha. And that means unpleasant one. The experience of standing and feeling the knee and the sensations in the bending and so on. Hmm? Till it, she caught up in the Dharma. She saw what she's doing. And she said, now I stay. That is right effort. That was a courage attitude. Taking your life into your hand now. 
not being ruled by unpleasant feelings. Now, did that make clearer? It came, it arose in this um, kind of experiencing your body. And then as you kind of projected the feelings and the, 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 the kind of painfulness by for standing you would have in standing you would think you as you thought you would have to experience so you projected the unpleasantness which wasn't that moment so strong yet you if you had not caught up maybe at that time and had another five minutes produced the lamentations about it, you would have been maybe not more savable. The Vedana of unpleasantness would have taken and uh, you would have believed everything and you would have stepped out and just lie down. I can't do it. Have been an, a beautiful a victim. That is what is me- I meant by we are ruled by these feelings. They come from the sensations of our body. They come f- with the sensations we, of the experiences we have in the experiencing in the con- contact of our seeing consciousness with what we see, in seeing, in other words. We experience unpleasant feelings also in hearing. If you hear sounds which you don't like, it's dukkha, and it doesn't go away. We run then, or call the police, they are too loud there above me. See, unpleasant, we want to shake it right away. If you were awakened to some degree, you sit down now and realize, yeah, they're having real fun up there. And it's loud, yeah. Now you shift in hearing the sound. This is, comes that dukkha, that negative attitude toward that sound come, is, is, is dukkha. You don't accept it. comes from hearing the sound somehow. But you don't hear it anymore when you now, with your negative attitudes, want to get rid of it. You are out of hearing. With mindfulness, you can allow yourself to sit down and hear the noise of the music and the little screams between. And, uh, uh, and, uh, and uh, you know they're enjoying it according to their abilities. You know, you would not do that kind of party, but they do. (laughs) You would have even a wonderful, compassionate feeling. That's all what they can bring about for pleasure. mm, So, unless it becomes too strong or dangerous, and so then you step in, but not with this attitude, see? So anyway, let's say it is kind of just noisy, big party. So you meditate now, hearing the sound. Hearing the sound. Uh Uh-huh, unpleasant. But that is 
interference with hearing the sound. Non-interference is to be with real mindfulness, hearing the sound. It's a wonderful meditation. I have known in India a master who only taught hearing the sound. And many so-called masters or swamis, spiritual leaders, had only available as a, uh, for teaching, bringing the mind to quiet and to more graciousness through mantra, chanting. I did with a group of sadhus <laughs> in the, ta- the town of the dying ones, that is um, Sa- Sarana. Yes, sa- is it? Varanasi. Varanasi, sa- Varanasi yeah. Varanasi. The sound of the dead. That means, I mean, the city of the dead. Old people, poor mostly, they come to this city in order to die. They align themselves at the uh, uh, kind of um, access, uh, uh, access little ways, the access way from the city to the river Ganges. Hmm? And uh, there they sit in the sand, covered with their rags, sick, decrepit, whatever, and just begin to sit and stay open and let themselves be taken by the Lord of death. They know they come for dying. And um, I lived in that town for a few, I think two months or so, Varanasi, in the Mahabodhi Society complex. That was a very beautiful place, like a park with nice, modest buildings, and you could uh, uh, get a room there. They had a big iron gate and watched people who went in and out. But I wanted to go to chant with these, with these uh, sadhus, these spiritual teachers, living in little, 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 little accommodations or huts close to this scene I just described where the people die. Hmm? The te- there were many little, they call it temples, along the... The, 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 the river hmm? also. And uh, I got acquainted in one where the, the sadhus were, you know, sadhus is actually spiritual teacher. Hmm? And they have renounced the world and um, uh, ha- dedicate themselves to the spiritual practices in themselves and also lead accordingly a very modest life and don't provide for them. They let be, allow themselves to be fed sudana constantly by other people, by people who visit 
these little temples. Huh? But to the Christmas time, it begins on the 11th of November, it's our Christmas time, but this chanting time, and it goes three months till the 11th of, of, of March, I think, and it's actually four months, no, yeah, no, it, I think, and they come from other cities, and they kind of gather quite con- uh, big crowds in these small temples, which have no real floors like this, this kind of a dobe floor, and there is in the center of that floor, the room might be that big like this corner, in indenture. And there they make a fire because it's cool. And then the, the owner of that temple will provide this, this kind of fire and see that it goes. And that is now a movement of chanting in that time in all these temples. And it never stops. It's always going, chanting. And now come the lay people, the businessmen and the, 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 the mothers and, or children in the, in the afternoon or in the morning or mainly in the afternoon when it goes to businessmen. And they sit down with these sadhus and they chant. They replenish themselves with spiritual energy after they have sat behind their little, uh, little selling places, yeah, and displays and whatever they sold, they're exhausted from it and business was maybe not so good. So they go now to forget all and become spiritual. <laughs> And Chan, and I, when <clears throat> became acquainted with one little temple and the temple, temple, um, temple priest, yeah, the sadhu, the main sadhu, and he had many guests. I think about nine or ten, and in the and it had to go without interruption through the night. They could, you could go sleep, and others would, uh, and others would go to sleep. Sometimes only two were sitting there and chanting at two o'clock in the morning. Huh? But that's to the in that time I was always there. So after I got acquainted with this little with this main sadhu, and when I came about ten o'clock. I had to wait until my husband goes to sleep. I waited. I massaged his feet and helped him (laughs) into the dream. Oh, I did wonder, and he loved it. He was really wonderful. He let me go. Yeah, he said, yeah, do that before you go there, you know. When he found out why I massaged his feet. <laughs> so now that was the first hindrance for me to go and to go through. <laughs> now, yeah, to break through and to be now patient and massaging the feet of your husband whilst you really wanted to go to the sadhus. <laughs> so, but uh, I did it and 
the more I saw the impatience sometimes, the better I was, became my massage. And the more genuine it was and more present I was. Only when you turn, can transfer it into the Dharma, into you, and all what it is, you bring, you become aware of what you are doing. You see? And you know how you are creating more dukkha of that, what dukkha you are in. Hmm? And I also wanted him to be friendly to leaving him, you see, in the night. It wasn't that I should be there, but he would also be anxious also when I go in the middle of the night away into a kind of unknown territory. Well, it took, he found out, but then, by then I was established already. So the next hurdle was difficult. You see, when you are going to the temple, you have to bring always dana, hmm? like you have to bring dana here too. Hmm? Not you don't have to, but it is a custom, and so you can kind of tune into that custom. Hmm? It's called dana here. And there it was bakshi, hmm? bakshi, yeah. So I had a basket with bakshis, cookies, and ban- not bananas because you could get them a lot, but uh, something else like uh, maybe uh, 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 cooked rice with something nice, seaweeds, I don't know, whatever. I had, it was always full. Or oranges, hmm? sweets. So, here is one night. It did. It was an accident. Uh, I always succeeded until then to go to the time where the the guard man either was sleeping in his little hut next or little tent. I knew exactly his behavior. Or he was uh, somewhere else. I knew that at 11 o'clock he was really then solid. I must have done off in my time, you know. Being late is a little bit uh, a condition (laughs) with me. So I came late without knowing. I didn't even see him. So what I did, this big, you know, that was a gate, iron gate, two big doors locked together, and from there extended wire, really sharp wire, what? Ah, Yeah, Uh, and in order to give protection to this compound in which I live. So, I kind of figured out where my feet would fit. And I succeeded. Not quite. Ninety-five percent I was just at the end up there to make the transition from this side to the other side of the gate. It was a little bit awkward because I was carrying my bakshis with a basket. I was very agile, obviously. I was a little younger at that time. <laughs> so at that point where I reached over with my foot, oh, 
I hear this voice. I look down, and he, I don't know what that was, a gun or something he had in his hand, you know. And he was ready to kind of act. He thought I was a thief. And then I spoke English or whatever. He then recognized me, uh, me as a Westerner. Uh, he demanded me down. But before I went down, I made the step on the other side and went down there. <laughs> so I got what I wanted. <laughs> and then I spoke sweetly through these uh, iron, uh, yeah, yeah, of the of the gate, these iron bars, and you know, bakshis for him helped very quickly. <laughs> Not for my basket. I always took always some rupees with me, hmm? so I was free, and my my my. Um, Nightly visits became easier. I don't need to jump over anymore. He let me go. Hmm? So then I arrived in my little particular temple, and here is the old sadhu with a long beard sitting next to the fire with a long kind of pole and shearing it and uh, and uh, yeah kindling it hmm? and incense you could hardly see anybody it was so thick but it was always there was never a stop i came and there were at least maybe three or four at nine this may have been 11 there were at least eight chanting and also lay people huh and when I came, he spoke a little, I think, he could say, Mother Ganji coming, I go to sleep. So I was with his sadhi sitting till about six o'clock in the morning, or maybe even later, and so that I was back to breakfast. And I would go before eight o'clock. But I did that for two months, hmm? and um, not always did I go. Sometimes I would go to the row of those who are waiting the Lord of Death. I would take one rag, something which looked like it, <clears throat> cover my hair, which was at that time somehow blonde. Lighter than now, you know. And I would cover, totally was a big one, so that I wasn't to be recognized, huh? So that I could, however, navigate what's happening. <laughs> because at 8 o'clock, if I want before back, gone by then, um, Indian ladies came with a bicycle and a servant who carried a big barrel of her hot rice feeding these people. Yeah? And now they would have 
recognized me that I wasn't one of them. You see, they would have blue eyes and light hair. Under there, I wasn't so raggy. Under this raggy big blanket, hmm? so once I I I missed going, but I saw them coming, and I put over and I you know made my noise and passed them by and off I went. Didn't want to be recognized. That was my very special practice. It was to the Christmas time. It was with lots of, of effort um, connected. But when I was sitting down there on the dobe floor, warming my cold feet or hand on the little fire in the middle of this little temple room, together with these uh, old spiritual teachers, together with different lay people, and that Indian chant, I have one still, what we were chanting, Om Namah Shiva. Hmm? Who knows it? It's beautiful. You want to hear it? Yes. Tomorrow. Yes. Hmm? And again and again and again and again. And then they have little rattles in it and uh, that uh, uh, in, instigates your 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 effort or your uh, your your uh, yeah the effort you need to sing or to but actually you became a, an energy manufacturing organism yeah it was beautiful i was uh, floating if you hadn't opened the gate for me i could f- fly over that kind of attitude I had when I came back. And um, now anyway, that was my story. It's another discourse you had. Could you see it? I don't need to say more, do I? Oh yeah, it's not ending, finished yet. Later, this was maybe in the mid-60s, my dear Dharma friends in the beginning of the 60s, because I went 1962 to Burma to practice with my teacher. And um, then from there, we went to a tour through India hmm? and visited different temples and different... uh, 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 and uh, uh, the ruins were places the Buddha had had taught, had touched. Hmm? The so-called Elephanta caves, I think they are called. They are far in the wilderness, and uh, to walk there was maybe five, uh, four hours into the wilderness. But then the uh, Indian. At that time, you know, they're all poor. They created a little business for them. They had um, um, like yurts, not yurts, um, you know, two sticks together and a canvas between, and you could lie down and they carried you, two, two carriers. Hmm? 
So I let myself carry up. Hmm? Um, yeah, for that reason, we then did go to see the relics and places uh, of the Buddha after we came with my husband together from Burma uh, from our training with Vipassana teacher Ubaikin. He was a lay person and he was a short time in his life a monk. But he was realized and uh, was working it was a high government uh, official general accountant. He served at that time in his, in his retirement time on volunteer. Hmm? And he was the one who built this uh, temple, this, <clears throat> which he called International Meditation Center. He had his in, in, in education in the West, because, uh, you know, he was uh, helping now, or together with the British at that time, who had already left, to build up the new democracy, the new cover in government in Burma. Hmm? And he was the general accountant. And with him, I had uh, we had several months training uh, with him. There was a limited time we could stay there, I think, as not as was the second time. So anyway, so we left and traveled now through India, down to um, Sri Lanka. And that was really where you could see many places, visit many places where Buddha has taught. Hmm? It was actually, it was very long there, it's a real wonderful, pure Vipassana practice, the monks uh, you meet there. Um, I met there um, the one who wrote the book, Heart of Buddhism, Niaponikana Sera, hmm? very great scholar, living in, in uh, um, Kandy, that is the main city in Ceylon. It was Ceylon before that time, Sri Lanka. And I pilgrimaged out to his place, maybe seven miles to walk through the forest. Hmm? And I was, sit, was sitting with him. I remember only one thing he said to me. I'm not quite clear on it. He called my, my eyes to look out to the tree. He wanted something to demonstrate, but I really... And then he asked me, what do you see behind the tree? Well, I didn't see any, except I would have fantasy about it. Huh? I think something like that he wanted to demonstrate. Hmm? Yeah, in Kandy, as so this legend goes, the, the bones or some relics of Buddha's body enshrined in a beautiful little temple. Hmm? And once a year, at Buddha's birthday, and Enlightenment Day, and Vesak, 
they're carrying it to a procession through the land, through the through the town. Hmm? I don't know why I got to that. Yeah, it has something to do with... Oh, yeah, I wanted to tell you that what time it was when I was in India. Hmm? And when I was in Burma for my training, Vipassana, you weren't... Many of you weren't born by then yet. Who is born before 62? Well, you were born then. Uh-huh. But those who are after 61 born, I was at 61, so you weren't born there yet. If you are born after 61, that's what I wanted to know. Yeah. So you are, but you still would be over 40 years, not so young anymore either. Yeah, so comforting when you know your friends also are 82. It's really true. So, um, well, these were my heydays, my spiritual practices I loved. Now I wanted to tell you the ending. Not the ending, but it has a little uh, uh, um, ending. Now, after this training... In 19, I several times went back to Burma to see my teacher. In 1979, he died. He gave me the permission to teach then. So that was 1974, when I now was invited to teach in IMS. My first uh, retreat was in Germany, whilst I was having holiday in Switzerland with my husband and in the company of a very enlightened yogi called Krishnamurti not the one we know JK this was UG Krishnamurti he's still alive he is my age and um, but the other Krishnamurti had in that city in which we had holiday. We lived in an old, old chalet. It's an old farmer's building, huh? Half for the animals and half for human beings. And this, Yuji Krishnamurti lived in the higher uh, level, in that same. He had, my husband had met him in India. And then somehow they were friends together. He visited us also in 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 Los in Hollywood where I lived. So anyway, um, I started. I said my first retreat was 1974 in Germany in a penthouse. A group of people had a, a woman so-called Dr. Lotte Moser, she was a student of Yuba Ken, had practiced at the university 10 years, Pali, hmm? in, in Rangoon. She was my student, too, later. So then um, she arranged this retreat for me. 
in the middle of my fine holiday time in Switzerland, I got a telegram, please come to us. Hmm? Because she heard that I was there and she, realized, she knew I had the credential to teach. Then the second retreat, I made in, in America. 1974, again. I think that I talk about was 73, actually. 74. And that was in, in, in Los Gatos, in an old resort for uh, Christian spiritual leaders, hmm? monks. And... The second in America was in IMS, and that was in February, and in March, and in April. Three retreats I had consecutively um, in, in 1974. And from there on till mid-80, mid I was teaching very intensely through all cities and places in Europe. I really helped planting the Dharma. I spoke English and German and enough French at that time that I could make in French meta, quite wonderfully. I was studying too. So, so now I find myself teaching in Varanasi. Varanasi. I was invited because there were very few teachers, only Jack and Joseph and Sharon. No, she didn't teach yet. She was in my, my class. Mm -hmm. No. Oh, yeah, Jacqueline Schwartz, too. So I was invited to this group after I had visited my old temple. My teacher was already dead, but I went there. had a hard time, really, and you could only stay 24 hours. There was a military government. Oh, it was tough. Hmm? Where was this? 1973, I think. Four. Four. Yeah, must have been four. Yeah. Because I was invited for teaching at 74, maybe two. Yeah. To teach in Varanasi, it was, re it was organized for me. They knew I am in the temple when you look at my way of teaching, you know, it's not Vipassana, it's Ruth Dennison teaching, you know, read there. So it must be different. <laughs> it is. I give one discourse too, but I start in the early morning and finish in the evening. <laughs> Mine never finishes. It's really true. I gave you so much today already. I don't give you just instructions. I bring half the Dharma in it. Hmm? I would pretty good to entertain you.
anymore. So that was the story. This is my student. He is now um, having a very wonderful sangha. Every Sunday, about 100 people. Was he on that retreat with you? The, yeah, that's where I met him. Mm-hmm. Yes, and then he became my student. Hmm? And he went to every retreat in Brightonbush and in, in, in Oceanside and in Portland and in the higher north town in Seattle, in Canada. You know, those were my pioneering times. He followed me. I remember one night I spent with him. He was in such deep sadness because he was then by then already married and there were some troubles, you know, young marriages. That is kind of natural, hmm? having trouble. <clears throat> um, his wife went in holidays and he didn't trust the situation. And anyway, um, he, he, we um, kind of used the Dharma and the skill to pacify and to uh, diminish that great uh, distress and anguish. Hmm? That was in the middle of the forest in uh, Washington State, somewhere. Hmm? Kind of little huts, no, and in the big, little, little like hunting, hunting huts, hmm? but really nicely equipped with fireplace and so on. So and then I couldn't. When it was quite a process of um, kind of communicating and making him realize this, this, this accepting what is this anguish. Hmm? And I tried in devil ways to support him. Then one thing broke it, and I heard one tape of him, and I think it's a continuation of this one, that he mentions that moment, that uh, um, all that anguish was accepted suddenly and uh, was uh, kind of uh, dissipated in its uh, heaviness and and stress. Hmm? Just by simply pointing finally out, I said, now listen, Robert, what do you expect of all that? Pointing to what he also did, hmm? his karmic, uh, his karma, his actions. Life is dukkha. And that was enough for him. He recollected himself into the first noble truth. Oh, that is what the Buddha points out to. He teaches only one thing. Suffering and its ending. And the first noble truth is the truth of suffering. So that's what I said. And who, what, what, where do we suffer? In our lives. Life is suffering. When we are not awakened and can understand it, why it is there and have no way of realizing 
bringing our calmness and our acceptance and allowing toward that anguish and allowing it to coexist and to be gracious to it. It heals in its heaviness for you also open up now to see the cause and that you play a great role in that creating that dukkha. Provided you are humble enough and um, gracious enough to, to, to see it, to turn inward. Hmm? And as he did that, and that tipped it off, and I reminded him on, on him the first noble truth to recognize this thing as a truth, this suffering, the anguish. Hmm? It's not always there. But even if it isn't there, it is around the corner somewhere. <laughs> you know, you, you can be sure for that. Because when it isn't there, stay up. <laughs> really, it's really... Um, mm. So, even if it isn't there, what is there, there is a kind of an ease and, and happiness. But that is subject to change. And it goes far, faster away when there is no capacity to acknowledge that. Then you, that dukkha is just sneaking the back door in. And then it's anguish again. Hmm? So that is the first, first noble truth. That's what the Buddha gives us to look at the way we live. And what we do is we bring awareness now into it. And the great is really for me a wonder and a mysterious thing that we can heal just by accepting and noticing it and knowing it is there and it can and allowing it to walk with you. It's a very, very simple thing, not so easy to do, however. But it, it has somehow a mysterious touch. So my dear friends, that's the end of my discourse. Now we go and listen to Robert. Hmm? Um, you are sitting down. We were standing. Are you comfortable now? Take a nice, a, a comfortable um, posture of sitting, meditative sitting. You have to really listen to it. You are open for the sound of the drum, for the words. And he invites you now to transfer yourself into the time where there were ox carts as transportation instead of jets. Hmm? And so let me kind of, uh, I think...
experience a big birthday cake and it was projected my picture on it with a computer or how they did it I don't know the icing had, yeah the icing had my was my picture photo what rice paper but we ate that you could eat that oh yeah rice paper and then no icing was there it tasted like icing aha yeah it's one real surprise and um, so why did I say that Telling a story about a student in Colorado. Yeah, yeah, but uh, I had a special, special thing in mind. Last, Last year, yeah, that uh, <laughs> that I invite her. Oh, it was a student, Holy Moldy, who invited me for her sangha, and then she sneaked in. Before the retreat, which took place in a nunnery, yeah, Christian, in the middle of a forest, was quite wonderful. She sneaked in before an open lecture, public lecture for me, and I'm these things. And there were three hundred people in that church. And I didn't expect anything. I had three discourses somehow uh, because I knew that she had done that hmm, just in case. But she sneaked it in. I couldn't get out anymore. And the title was How to Live with Impermanence. Somehow, yeah? We mentioned that is a great feature in the Dharma, to see impermanence. All what we experience, the dukkha, has that quality. Impermanence, so that is very alleviating. You don't need to be feeling so overwhelmed. If you just stay calm enough, it goes away. At least the, the kind of suffering about it. And you relax a little bit more and let things fall apart. You're falling apart anyway, you see. So, um, so I, that was the p- topic. And I couldn't decide which, which uh, direction I was going, from which angle I wanted to start. And I took all three with me. And when I saw 300 people, I was on a big platform, in, or the altar part. Hmm? When I saw this, this, it was a very wonderful arrangement three sections of for sitting for people sitting three and they were in each 100 hmm? with children even they were there um, I kind of froze up inwardly 
and uh, I did not know still which one I shall choose. And so I, um, when I now, so after I had seen myself with all the desire, the quick wishes, I looked, you know, it's funny sometimes when you are so overwhelmed of a moment and unexpected. You know, even teachers are very human. Even Buddha was human. So don't think <clears throat> these things cannot happen. Um, I saw myself or said, I wished I was, was a mouse now. <laughs> and I could find quickly a hole <laughs> and go. It didn't happen. <laughs> then I saw that I had opened my folder and had the wrong discourse with me. Well, so um, not that I was so tied to it, but it's nice to have sometimes a little structure behind. Well, anyway, I dropped everything, the mouse, the mouse hole, my desire, I'm sorry, my anxiety <coughs> or my uh, wish uh, to have it other than it is, took a deep breath, sent it to each one there and bowed to them and I heard myself speaking. beyond the given time, naturally. <laughs> and we closed with a lovely rhythm, rhythm of, a, of a drum where we realized our movement and understood that that, that um, lives in us the impermanence. Hmm? And one day the impermanence is death. Part of the impermanence. And so we, we did little, like a skeleton relating to our bone structure. It's a wonderful practice. It's one of the of the um, meditation patterns that um, is done in the first foundation of mindfulness. One form of manifesting attention, mindfulness to body. We take exactly like we do now have the breath more in focus. We have then, on, and the posture, then the next could be taking into focus the skeleton structure. Hmm? I have a big one here in the... Mm -hmm. So then, I'm finished. <laughs> This is the end of my discourse. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
I did still not tell you the reason why I mentioned her. And I wanted to find out whether I knew why I mentioned her, the student. Yeah, because I invite her here and then to, to do in Damadina discourse and, and, and teaching. Hmm? Twice she was there. So I feel I should do that more often now. Old enough and have enough students, I think eight or nine are teaching and have very powerful, strong sanghas. In Germany, one, oh, she has a fabulous uh, uh, sangha. Another one also in her own home. And here about, I think, five or seven are teaching with a strong sangha. It's my legacy. So I think I can maybe retire a little bit more. I haven't had any 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 um, holiday or what do they say? Um, a, a whole year. Sabbatical. 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 <laughs> <laughs> I think of celebration. Yeah. Yeah, sabbatical. I should take that. So, yeah, that's why I mentioned it. And I see myself in Colorado Spring. Who has been there? It's a most beautiful place. Very ancient, very uh, antique. hmm? In the center of the city. And uh, a lovely um, landscapes, keeping and a whole forest of lovely uh, rocks formation. They call it even a stone forest. It has a special name. Loveland, I think it's called. So, then take a deep breath now and open up your arms and bring in your breath. Stretch through the spinal column. Notice that you are sitting and bring your hands to your heart. Feel the blessedness being here and practicing together. Open up. Above your head, you know, cross here. Gently come back to your heart. Let your breath come, tuning into this body again, feeling the blessedness that we are able to do it. Quite resilient. We can go as sight and make side trips with our minds, and when we and we have the capacity to bring it any time back to home. Hmm? And one more time. Feel your breath, breathing in. Feel it subsiding, leaving you. Bring your hands to your heart and make a bow for your blessedness.